turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the program. We continue on um, forging ahead here. There's a new program that is on KFAX. Maybe you've been fortunate enough to catch it Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. called Build Your House. It's a verse-by-verse journey through God's Word with an emphasis on explanation and, most importantly, application. Because if you understand it but don't know how to apply it, not much good, right? The host of the program, senior pastor at Calvary Chapel of Fremont, Pastor Tim Brown joins us in studio. Pastor, great to see you again. Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me. Talking a bit about uh, life here and uh, some of the some of the difficult journeys that, you know, from time to time, I guess, all of us find us in. Um, the challenges that come our way, sometimes we're prepared for them. Sometimes they hit us, you know, kind of uh, blindly out of left field, as the old saying goes. But I think ultimately, through all of these kinds of experiences of just living life, um, Hiding God's heart, uh, God's word in our heart. Right. I think yeah. of that passage, you know, thine word have I hidden yeah. in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Yeah. It's, it's not just casual words. I mean, there's tremendous weightiness to that as it comes to being a, a resource for just surviving this thing called life, isn't it? Well, well there is. And just to reference our previous conversation, uh, you, you would think that the older you get, the road becomes smoother uh, the way becomes calmer, uh, and when it doesn't, how how important it is that in the early years of your life, you store up God's word in your heart. God is faithful. God is faithful. And though, uh, you know, we're told that uh, uh, sorrow lasts a nighttime, but uh, shout of joy in the morning. Yeah. Sometimes that shout of joy might be delayed a little bit for some people. <clears throat> and so to have that word there, to know that God is faithful, I can rest on the promises of God. And even when I can't see him, when everything is falling apart, God is there. That faith that sustains you, it's incredible. You go through that dark day into a dark night, and you're so anticipatory of looking for that joy that comes, yeah. that spring of forth in the morning, and then you get there, and if it arrives, it's fleeting, it's short-lived, and then you're back into more turmoil. Um, and I guess to put all this in perspective, nowhere in Scripture are we promised that if we commit our lives to Christ, that the troubles of life will somehow magically pass us by. What does Scripture tell us? That it rains on the just and the unjust. So it's not that it happens. It's in how we respond to it. That's it. I guess that really is key, isn't it? Well, you know, uh, David writes, Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. (laughs) And so even... Even there in the middle of the whole thing, I can look out in the darkness. I can see the eyes of the wolves, you know, all around. God sets a table, and I can eat. Though I'm surrounded by uncertainty, uh, financial, possible financial collapse, 
tragedies around me you know, as a pastor and, and you being in the business you're in, you, you, you're, you're surrounded by uh, the news of uh, folks in the church that are struggling one way or another. And yet, even in the middle of that darkness, even in the presence of my enemies, I can eat. And the Lord is good. I, I, and I'm still in the valley of the shadow of death mm-hmm. when that's happening. It's not like I've come through to the other side. It's not a, this feast isn't set in the light. It's in the darkness. And I guess that it's in those times of darkness in which we can get to study and experience the character of God, the, the protection of God um, in, in, in the most phenomenal way. I mean, I suppose in a sense, Pastor Brown, if we just went through life and it was all yadida, wonderful, and there seldom any trials or tribulations came our way, it also could be quite arguable that we might suddenly forget our need for God. Say, well, we got it all handled, so you know, God's great to have around when we when we need Him in <laughs> yeah, a pinch. Yeah. But uh, you know, on a good sunny bright day, who's thinking about Lord? I need Thee, oh dear Lord, that's I right. need Thee. We're, yeah, we're right. seldom on our knees under the good times. I, I think that there's nothing like disappointment to really prove the mettle of a man or a woman. Um, you're traveling along in life; uh, your income increases. Uh, things are going smoother. Those things that were a challenge to you in your youth, by the grace of God, you've learned to work through. And then disappointment hits. Uh, I know of people, you know of people, that uh, their children have died. They've walked away from God. How could a good God do this to me? And then here's another couple that says, we grieve and we sorrow, and yet we know God is good. We're so grateful that our child is before the throne of God now, and we're just waiting to be joined with them. Uh, same event, two exact uh, uh, opposite kind of responses. And I think it has a lot to do with the, the, the program is called Build Your House. It's what you build in your life. It's the foundation that you, you build your life upon. And not just uh, professing Christ, but possessing the essence of the Word of God that I've hid in my heart. And the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, and he's living inside of me. I have, I have the God of the whole universe living inside of me. And if that doesn't build you up, if that doesn't uh, communicate joy to you, I, I don't know what would. I, I've been in the ministry now. Well, I, I started in January of 1973 while still in Bible college as a youth pastor. And since that time, I've been in some kind of uh, Youth pastor, assistant pastor, senior pastor now for 42 years and uh, 66 years old. But when I'm 80, when I'm 90, I want to be raising my hands in church, at home, wherever, and say, thank you, Jesus. I love you. I, I don't want to be the old guy in the back row with my arms crossed and talking about these dab nabbit youth, you know. I just want to be right there in the mix, just pouring out my love for Christ and just knowing um, his faithfulness to me uh, through all of it. And it really does come back down to that sense of, you know, the building of precept upon precept, the manner in which we construct our house, mm-hmm. our spiritual house, from the very foundation. And Scripture has much to say about this, shifting sand, solid rock, things of these sort. I, I recall many years ago, my mother, who had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, promised six months to live. God had different plans. She made it 14 years. Mm. And at one point in one of the more difficult 
sort of, you know, it was the, the, the gutter in the valley of her chemotherapy cancer experience. She said to me one day, I'm so grateful to God for my cancer. And as the son, you hear that and think, how can you say such a thing? Everything that you've been through and the hospital visits and the losing of hair and the pain and the agony and, and all that attends to a diagnosis like that. And so I started to kind of protest, as any good son ought to, mother, you don't mean that. No, I do, because my cancer has brought me so much closer to God. Mm-hmm. And I become day by day so much more persuaded of his keeping power mm-hmm. that even when I get into those moments when I feel like there's just – I don't have an ounce of energy left in me, God comes along and is the one that sustains me and carries me through. And then, of course, you know, the, the almost natural uh, Jobian reference that, you know, though he slay me, yeah. yet shall I serve him. And I think that sense for all of us that if we've built our spiritual house on that firm foundation, not of shifting sand, but really gone down to the, to the rock, the bedrock, and studied to show ourselves approved, and then learn how to exercise our faith muscle, that that's the thing that takes you through those life experiences where anybody else would say, that's it, I throw my hands up, yeah. I give up, I'm yeah. going to you know, check out a life, go to the bottle, whatever. But the one who has built their house on the firm foundation is the one that can sustain through those times. And what you're describing just isn't a temperament or a personality type. What you're describing is someone that has built their life upon the rock. Mm-hmm. That any, any personality type, any, any kind of a temperament, you know, whether you're a born optimist, born pessimist, whether you're outgoing, uh, whether you're more reserved, whether you see the glass half full or glass half empty, as you build your life upon the Word of God and the Holy Spirit transforms you through the years, the fruit of that is your mother's testimony. And this is not something that, Pastor, that you, uh, what the, the kids might say, you psych yourself up for. No. You, yeah. you don't get into the mirror and, and, and repeat some magic phrase and suddenly find yourself magically with the capacity to deal with life's challenges. It, 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 it really is the slow application of God's Word and an attitude of prayer and, and surrendering, I suppose, of oneself to Him little by little, day by day. And that's the reason, really, the program, well, one of the reasons the program is called Build Your House. Um, Our mutual friend, Brian, has been trying for years to get me to come on on the radio. And I've told him no so, so many times. I've wondered why he still maintained his (laughs) friendship with me, uh, because I just always put him off um, for for one reason or another. But he said, hey, I, I got the beautiful time spot for you, 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. Sunday morning, and your service starts at 10 a.m. You can invite people to come to church. And uh, we're, not, we're not a huge church. We're not a big church by any means. And so obviously finances uh, is an issue of all this. And so being on once, once a week, um, I thought, well, that, that's manageable. But more than anything else, it's location, location, location. Of course. So we, uh, dur- during the program, I think it might be 9.15 or 9.20, uh, our uh, host will come on, our announcer will come on and say, hey, I, actually, I'll, I'll come on. They'll put me on. And I'll say, hey, look at your clock. It's almost 9.30. You still have time to get to church here. 
So, uh, you know, throw your clothes on. We're pretty casual. Just come on down here, give the address and all that. And when you come, introduce yourself to me. Now, it's only been four Sundays we've been on. And if someone has come from the radio, I'm not aware of it. No one has introduced themselves to me. But I told Brian I'd give it six months and see, you know, what kind of thing. But the reason really isn't to um, um, build the numbers of the church. Actually, for me, it's a pastoral decision. Because I know that there are many, many, many who profess Christ, uh, but they're unchurched for, for whatever reason. And so many people have had bad experiences with church, and I, I, I understand that. And so it really is a um, an attempt, a method to, to try to reach uh, those that are without a shepherd, those who are without a church, and to draw them. Obviously, the lost too. But I, I probably think it, it's probably Christians more than anything else that would listen to KPEX at that time. You would be surprised. You would be surprised. Well, that'd be great the for them to come and open their lives you know, to Christ. I, I think you find a lot of people, and this is indicative, maybe, of uh, not just life in the Bay Area. Maybe this is the direction our nation is headed in. That there's a good percentage of the never churched mm-hmm. that seems to be growing. Um, there's a percentile of the unchurched, many of whom fit in that sort of disenfranchised category, mm-hmm. as you suggest, that have been but had a bad experience or never had an opportunity to be rooted in a Bible-teaching mm-hmm. church. And so they walk away with a sense of disillusionment. Well, I tried God. That didn't work. Mm-hmm. So let's go after Scientology, Zoroasterism, whatever, yeah. they, whatever the, the, uh, the trip du jour may be mm-hmm. in an effort to try and find some answers to life. At the end of the day, what can be beautiful about this tool that, that goes beyond the barriers of the four walls of a church mm-hmm. and, and can reach people in a very intimate fashion is to reach people at their point of need – where the hurt is, and to just boldly and lovingly proclaim the Word of God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we've been discussing here, uh, therein lies the real key. I I think, sadly, there is so much biblical illiteracy today, even amongst those who count themselves as disciples Mm -hmm. followers of Christ, um, not knowing the Word, not studying the Word, that therefore do not have the Word to sustain them Mm -hmm. through those dark moments. And so building that foundation and then kind of like the Winchester Mystery House, you build the foundation, you never stop building the mm-hmm. house, you're constantly adding yeah. to it yeah. because all of this kind of becomes that, that cumulative total of one's not just life experience, but experience with God. I, I like to tell people, you know, yeah, I can quote chapter and verse and say, I believe it so for the Bible tells me so. Mm-hmm. But what a joy for the believer, especially as you grow older in your in your faith walk, to say that you know that you know that you know in your very heart of hearts, not just because the Word tells you so, because you have lived it and believe it and have experienced it and seen the practical application of how it's played out, God's faithfulness in your That's own right. life. You've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good. And that, that taste sustains you, not just one taste, but the ongoing taste of God's faithfulness. And so um, to get on maybe to a more uh, esoteric note, uh, my favorite philosopher is Kierkegaard, who introduced mm-hmm. uh, uh, existentialism, which uh, Francis Schaeffer cast in a negative light in his books. Uh, I, I look at uh, his 
existentialism as a as a Christian existentialism, and uh, and his whole um, uh, plea is basically let's taste and see that the Lord is good. We have doctrine, we, but let's experience Him uh, in in our existence. Let's uh, let's have Him impact my life today, not just with a head knowledge and academic theological knowledge, but in my heart. Let I want the Holy Spirit to change my character. I want to have an impact of God on my life. And that's been an emphasis all down through Christian history. And I think that's important because while certainly to take nothing away from from um, good, solid theology, which is what you present in the radio program, mm-hmm. Build Your House, again, Sunday morning to 9 a.m. here on KFAX, um, and and the capacity to memorize Scripture, apply Scripture, understand Scripture. But at the end of the day, isn't all of this ultimately to take us back to the heart experience, meaning that God did not send his son because he wanted to give us a reason to memorize chapter and verse, mm-hmm. but rather to get to know his son and God's character through chapter and verse right. so that ultimately we can live out that very real, very practical relationship. Well, Paul said the goal of our instruction is not knowledge. It's not some kind of an academic grasp of the, of the Scripture. It's not having a correct uh, theology. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Jesus, when asked what's the greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as, as yourself. yourself. The greatest commandment is love. The goal of our instruction, uh, Paul says, is love. Uh, Paul lays out the spiritual gifts in First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, gifts of power, gifts of faith, gifts of knowledge, gifts of miracles. Then he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And so I ask myself, a more excellent way to do what? Mm-hmm. Well, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to edify the body. But I'm going to show you a better way, a more excellent way to uh, edify the body and build other people up. And then we launch into the love chapter. And uh, without love, gifts of miracles, healings, faith, and tongues and interpretation. And I believe in all of that. Clanging what, symbol of sounding gong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's love. And as I look at the scripture, the greatest is love. The goal of our instruction is love. Now abide faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. A still more excellent way is love. I am finally, <clears throat> at this stage of my life, um, I have such a, a clarity about what's important. I, well, I think I do. But others might not, not think so. Uh, but, but a clarity about what, what the Holy Spirit is seeking to do in, in my life. And then just through those passages quoted about love, that, you know, if someone were to ask me, maybe use a, a radio host, hey, Pastor Tim, what, what do you see as the greatest problem in the church, the greatest challenge in the church? And, and I would go back to this is we don't love God, we don't love people the way that we should. We're trying to impact the community here, trying to impact the community there, going out and doing this and doing that, and that's all awesome. And maybe a lot of that is manifestation of love. But but the kind of love that uh, the son of a prodigal father, the, the father of a prodigal son has to wait for his son and then to forgive him and then to include him the kind of love that God had for a Manasseh 
in the Old Testament who spilled innocent blood all over Jerusalem, who raised uh, high places everywhere, who was dragged in chains to Babylon because of his sin, and in that prison cell in Babylon, he repented, and God restored him to the throne. Uh, that, That kind of love that is greater than sin, greater than failure, that kind of love that can come along somebody, alongside someone, says, I'm with you no matter what. I I think church, uh, in a very real sense, should be the safest place for a sinner to be. And yet, unfortunately, church oftentimes is the most dangerous place for a sinner to be uh, because of the judgment that comes from people toward them. I think of the passage of Scripture that is off-quoted. You will see it showing up on poster boards at football games, uh, everywhere. John 3.16, we mm-hmm. all know it. Yeah. To really understand it, though, coming back full circle to that notion of the demonstration of God's love, that he so loved the world. Yeah. And I think sadly because absent of having experienced that love, it's difficult to understand that love or to to even equate the degree of what God did in reaching out down to mankind to build that bridge through Christ because of that love that is unmeasurable, that grace that is boundless, that goes beyond man's capacity to comprehend, and yet was shown toward us that while we were yet sinners— he sent his son to make that ultimate sacrifice because mm-hmm. God so loved. And wow, it, to the degree to which we can begin in our, our very um, uh, finite mind to understand the love of an infinite God, an infinite love of God, um, is, is a challenge. And yet, boy, what, what, what greater experience than to experience God's love? There is none. It's, it's, none. it's, it's incomprehensible. I went to Starbucks this morning, and I did something that I've really wanted to do for two years. I've only had a couple opportunities, and I didn't take advantage of the other ones, but this morning I did. Uh, The Starbucks I go to is right next door to a mosque. And when the mosque ends, there's a a Muslim gentleman uh, at at the table. And so this morning I got my coffee, and I I walked up to them. There were four gentlemen, and I said, uh, you know, Forgive my intrusion. I wanted to know if I could ask you gentlemen a question. And so they uh, slid over a chair for me. And I said, I'm I'm a Christian pastor in the area. And I would like to ask you gentlemen, what would you want Christians in Fremont or Christians in America, if we can generalize it, what would you want us to know about you and your faith? Where do you think we misunderstand you? And they were quite taken aback. Uh, by the question. Understandably so. Well, we we have so many Muslims in the area. I mean, the whole world has come to Fremont. And I thought, boy, we need to do something. We need to do... We had a program for five years called God God Loves You, My Muslim Friend. And it was on um, public access cable. So it was free for us. And for five years, uh, I taught uh, verse by verse from the book of John and we offered Bibles in Urdu, in uh, Arabic, in um, Pashtun, in uh, a couple of Indian tongues and whatnot. And uh, we offered free Bibles. And in five years, not one nibble. 
And so after four years, we said, well, let's, let's cultivate this thing one more year and pour fertilizer on it. But after, if it doesn't bear fruit in a year, we'll shut it down. So for five years, uh, we tried to do something. It was just fruitless. And I thought there has to be another way. And I need to get in relationship with some Muslims. So this morning was my first attempt at this. And we had a good half-hour conversation. And it was very lively. We really didn't debate theology. I, I wanted to stay away from that. But basically, you know, how can we better understand you? Um, but the, the, the conversation did come around to um, uh, the, the nature of man. And uh, I talked to them about being made in the image of God. God said, create no image on heaven or on, you know, of anything in heaven or on earth. And God didn't want any images of him on earth because he already has images, you, you and, you me. and me. That's right. I said, here's a, a, a picture of my wife. That's, that's her image. That's not her. But when I look at her, it reminds me of, of when I look at the picture, it reminds me of her. Oh, when I is. look at you, you are to remind me of God because you're made in his image. I look at you, and I'm reminded of God. Now, what if I were to spit on this picture of my wife? I'm not spitting on her, but I'm spitting on her image. But you would know what I think about her by the way I treat her image. And, and they all agreed with that. And uh, you are the image of God. And you, you, though we don't belong to the same faith, um, though we have some you know, tremendous differences between them, we ne- and we didn't even begin to explore that, I said, you remind me of God. And I love you in, in the name of God, in the name of the Lord. I love you. And there was just kind of this... Taken aback. Taken aback yeah. for, you know, for, for a few seconds, and then we launched into something else. But I, I think God is downloading into my own spirit just, just the love of God, not just as a doctrine, but something to be lived out through me and in me. And uh, it has to start with treating his image right and uh when i don't treat his image right it tells me what i think about god takes us back full circle john three sixteen. for god so loved the world and um an important thing to be mindful of i think as we engage in not only our our um comings and goings mm-hmm. with the shopkeeper with mm-hmm. people that we do business with uh people that work friends family all of it uh who do we represent? And most importantly, too, um, what kind of a foundation are we building our life upon so that if people look at us? Do they say, boy, what a ramshackle mess that is, and it can mm-hmm. fall over in any storm, any wind uh, that blows along? Or is your house set on that firm foundation built upon that rock. The program's called Build Your House, a verse-by-verse journey through the Word with an emphasis on explanation and application. The broadcast every Sunday at 9 a.m. right here on KFAX. Currently, Pastor Brown is working his way through the book of Acts. Good place to be. What better way for the church today than to look at the first century church and uh, use them as the model. If you want to get more information, by the way, about the uh, the ministry of Calvary Chapel Fremont, uh, we invite 
invite you to check them out on the web at ccfremont.org. Think Calvary Chapel, ccfremont.org. They meet Sunday mornings, 10 a.m., and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. at 42986 Osgood Road, just up the block a stretch from Fry's in Fremont. And again, details available on the web at we just shared it with you. Do it again, ccfremont.org. The broadcast, Build Your House with Pastor Tim Brown, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel, Fremont, Sunday mornings, 9 a.m., right here on KFAX. And Pastor, we appreciate you dropping by. Thanks for having me, Craig. We'll take a time out. Let's get you updated on traffic right now. And from the KFAX Traffic Center, here's the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Of all of my trips overseas, I think the one that stands in my mind the clearest, and perhaps the most indelibly, was one of many trips into China, having an opportunity to meet a woman who at the time probably was 80, 82 years old. And I recall first being ushered into this small room that was a living room of hers, um, in a fairly nondescript uh, section of uh, Beijing of basically uh, large apartment buildings. And uh, as we sat down and began to uh, converse, I noticed that her hands were badly gnarled, uh, reminiscent of somebody who perhaps has a, a severe diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. You see people that have their hands that are so knotted up and crippled and almost to the point of being deformed, and that typically is a sign of the impact of rheumatoid arthritis. So with that assumption, we began our conversation, and as we visited, slowly the story came out that during the time of the um, revolution that took place in the 1960s, the so-called Cultural Revolution, where a Maoist came in and uh, decided that they were going to take everyone in the country that was educated, that he either had been a doctor or a professor or a school teacher, put them all out into farmland so they could be re-educated through labor and essentially turn over running of the operation of the country to uneducated peasants, that in the middle of that Cultural Revolution, there was a major clash that Christians found themselves in the middle of. At the time, in communist China in the 1960s, um, organized prosecution of Christians was even more severe then than it is today, so much so that merely possessing a Bible could land you in jail. The story emerged of this woman that hearing that the Revolutionary Guard had been making their way through her block, she had a Bible. She, of course, was a Christian. She took that Bible, wrapped it in plastic, and buried it in the ashes of her fireplace where she did her cooking. Unfortunately, much to her chagrin, the communist authorities were far more thorough than she expected, and after a thorough search of her home, they eventually uncovered the Bible hidden in plastic in the ashes of the chimney. When they found it, she intervened and quickly snatched the Bible back out of their hands and said that this was the most important link she had to her relationship with God and to, by all means, please not take her Bible. Well, the revolutionary soldiers argued with her, 
And finally they said, Woman, you either give us that Bible or we will beat it out of your hands. And beat it, they did. In fact, the condition of her hands when we met her in her early 80s had nothing to do with rheumatoid arthritis. She was, in fact, perfectly healthy. The terrible deformity of her hands was because she vowed not to let loose of her most prized possession, God's Word. And as a result, they took a club and so badly beat her hands that they were horrifically deformed even 40 years after this event took place. This story left an indelible impression upon me meeting her because her story, while seemingly unique to the Western ear, in fact is demonstrative of what is in many parts of the world normative Christianity. And normative by that I mean the sense of persecution that Christians face. In fact, in many parts of the world today, the model of Christianity that you will encounter, whether you're in parts of Africa or the Middle East or Asia, looks much like the conditions that Christians were facing in the first century church, being persecuted simply because you name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Some would argue that today there is seemingly a systematic global war on Christians, though it's not often talked about in the mainstream media. You won't hear it discussed on the 6 o'clock news. It won't be the topic of discussion around the water cooler tomorrow morning, and yet it happens. It is happening multiple times per day in upwards of what some report to be almost 130 nations across the world. Joining me tonight is senior Vatican analyst for CNN and celebrated author John Allen, who's penned a new book called The Global War on Christians. John, great to have you on the program tonight. Craig, it's a pleasure to be with you. We'll see if we can avoid some of those nettlesome, erroneous errors. Yes, <laughs> indeed. We'll just keep our facts factual tonight. Yeah. John, one of the big facts that you share inside the pages of this new book is the fact that there is an unprecedented level of, I guess, systematic in some levels, in some ways, certainly systematic by that meaning that it is either an institutional attack on the rights and religious freedoms of Christians by governments, in the case of communist China or Vietnam. In other cases, Christians falling victim and uh, becoming uh, on the receiving side of persecution simply because they are Christians and not of some other religion. Uh, For example, uh, what happens to people who convert from Islam to Christianity in countries like Saudi Arabia and others. Your book essentially takes us through every part of planet Earth and is kind of a glimpse into what is sadly a best-kept secret, and that is just how widespread the attack on Christians in the world today is. Yeah, that's right, Craig. I mean, I think our media does a creditable job of bringing isolated and scattered episodes of anti-Christian violence to us. I mean, you know, if a, if a church is bombed in Pakistan, or if Christians are brutalized in Nigeria by the Boko Haram, we might hear about it. But what is never supplied uh, in those reports is the context. And the context is... These are not simply isolated incidents. These are part of a a broad global pattern. Now, I mean, to be clear, Christians are not the only group out there whose whose rights are threatened, but I I think they are the group whose story is least told. Uh, And they are those, statistically speaking, who are most often in the firing line. I mean, the the estimate, uh, the low-end estimate for the number of Christians killed every year around the world for their faith is 9,000. The high-end estimate is 100,000 which means somewhere between 1 and 11 Christians are being killed every hour of every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. This is a global pandemic. This global pandemic, of course, um, 
is not altogether under wraps. We know that annually the U.S. State Department puts out a report on religious persecution around the globe. Sadly, five of the top uh, ten biggest um, offenders in this arena also happen to be some of the top five U.S. trade partners. Uh, countries like uh, communist China, for example, where uh, religious persecution there is not necessarily at the hands of, of fellow Chinese as much as it is uh, systematic and organized by the state. How widespread is this sort of institutionalized level of persecution against Christians? Well, it's sort of a bewildering cocktail of forces out there that, that put Christians in harm's way. I mean, ranging from various forms of religious radicalism, not just Muslim radicalism, by the way, uh, but in India, there was a rising tide of anti-Christian hatred being f- fueled by uh, radical uh, Hinduism. Uh, in places like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, we're talking about radical Buddhism. But you also have to throw into the mix state-sponsored uh, anti-Christian hostility. Uh, and, of course, China would be the leading example, but not the only one. You could also look to, to states such as North Korea, uh, Eritrea, Belarusia. I mean, basically, any place there's a police state that sees religious minorities as a threat to its hold on power. Uh, You also have to throw into the mix uh, corporate interests in some parts of the world that don't like the stands that Christians take in defense of social justice, Uh, drug gangs around the world that don't like the the stands Christians take against the drug trade. I mean, the the list of of potential oppressors uh, of Christians and other minority groups uh, is depressingly long, Craig. And sadly, for many of us in the West, as I say, and you pointed this out uh, throughout the book, The Global War on Christians, not that it never gets reported, but it's typically underreported or not contextualized. Uh, For example, I had a trip many years ago, first one into Indonesia, and we were treated to tours of burned-out sections, literally block after block after block of homes and businesses that had been destroyed. And we were told that it had been part of a 1993 through 95 purge of Christians, my militant Muslims there, who were um, big supporters of the Suwarto regime. And this group of probably 15 journalists, we looked at each other and said, now, wait a minute. Why don't I recall hearing anything about this? Well, the fact of the matter was that it was very well kept under wrap and apparently wasn't exciting enough to be covered by mainstream global news sources, and so therefore remained a very quiet secret, a secret to everyone, except, of course, the families of those in Indonesia that lost their lives. This kind of a story repeated over and over and over again. Why is it that we don't hear more about this? We'll get into that part of the story. John Allen, Jr. with us tonight. His book is called The Global War on Christians, dispatches from the front lines of anti-Christian persecution. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when we think of the global war on Christians, and I will tell you, having spent time with these people in everywhere from North Korea to Vietnam to communist China and parts of the Middle East that I can't even mention, to a person they've all reminded us, as I've said, you know, as I go home to America, what should I be telling fellow believers? They've all said to a person, don't forget us, please pray for us. 
oddly not have asked for a cessation of the persecution. I think that's largely because there's there's a degree of spiritual maturity to understand that as we see outlined in the the book of Acts and certainly historically in the first century church, um, persecution is kind of a normative Christianity. In fact, what we enjoy in the West is a very different type of Christianity, certainly than what uh, the founding fathers of Christendom went through uh, all those years ago. That said, though, there are more things that we can and should be doing than just praying for them. And as John Allen on details inside of his new book, The Global War on Christians, Uh, We have a political blind spot on this topic, John, sadly. And I mentioned before the break, I always find it interesting how we'll consider Saudi Arabia to be one of our major trading partners. It certainly is when it comes to the commodity called oil. We will whisper a comment or two regarding, oh, something concerning human rights and the way women are treated there, but largely have nothing to say about the way the kingdom of Saudi Arabia treats Christians. Do we need to change this? Oh, of course we need to change it. Uh, and by the way, Saudi Arabia is a, is a fascinating case, because you know when we look at Christianity in the Middle East, we tend to think of it as an endangered species. And of course, you're absolutely right. You've mentioned the, the, the way the church in Iraq has been gutted, uh, the threats faced by the Coptic Christian community in Egypt, Syria, other parts of the map. Uh, you know, the, the estimate is that, that Christians were almost 20% of the population in the Middle East at the, in the middle of the 20th century, and uh, today they're around 12, and the projection is by mid-century they'll be 6. People talk about an exodus out of the region, and yet in Saudi Arabia there is a rapidly growing Christian community. There are now an estimated almost 2 million Christians inside the kingdom, uh, a million and a half of them being Catholics, uh, and that they're not native Arabs, they're not native Saudis. These are basically so-called guest workers, you know, Filipinos, uh, Koreans, uh, Vietnamese, Nigerians, Lebanese, uh, and others who have been drawn to work in the domestic service industries and the oil and gas business, uh, who are uh, basically three times discriminated against, one as impoverished, basically indentured servants, two uh, as lower-class ethnic minorities, and three as Christians. And I think on all three of those scores, we ought to be pressing Saudi Arabia to do a better job. Another case is um, North Korea. Now, I know North Korea is a bit of a sticky wicket, as the saying goes, because we're dealing with issues concerning uh, nuclear weapons there, which has been an ongoing battle and uh, and certainly one that will no doubt last for a long time to come. And yet even as Dennis, is it Dennis Rodman that's been in and out of the country, I think Dennis Rodman, uh, that's been flitting in and out of Saudi Arabia and concerning Kim Jong-un as one of his best basketball buddies, and yet nothing is ever said about the fact that just simply possess a Bible in North Korea comes with a sentence of death. Well, yes, I mean, the, the anti-Christian animus in North Korea is so grotesque that if you even have a Christian grandparent, you are disqualified from holding senior office in the military, you're disqualified from pro- political life, you're disqualified from leadership positions uh, in industry. Uh, there are tens of thousands of Christians in North Korea who are languishing in what amount to religious concentration camps. Uh, tens of thousands more have been disappeared over the years. Uh, it is a nightmare, which is why every year, and of course there are organizations out there that rank countries in terms of how hostile they are to Christians, North Korea routinely finishes in first place. I actually, I, I almost hesitate to talk about North Korea in some ways, because it can seem so uh, surreally hostile to Christianity that people might think it's a, a kind of unique case. The truth is, North Korea is merely the most grotesque example of what is truly a global problem. 
Indeed so. I mean, and I've shared with listeners on this program the challenges that I've had traveling in and out of some of these countries and at one point uh, narrowly became a guest of the uh uh, of of, the, of uh, Vietnam because of uh, involvement with Christians there. I mean, the, the issues that you speak to inside of the global war on Christians are very real issues. And I'm delighted, John, that you've in such a concise fashion given voice to uh, these fellow believers around the planet. I guess the, the big question I leave you with is in terms of response, I, we mentioned earlier certainly to pray for them is, is first and foremost. What else can we do? How can we better engage um, on a political level, some of these issues that's not our direct responsibility, but our elected officials in Washington, D.C.'s responsibility to say and do something about? Well, one, uh, in, in terms of the humanitarian level, we can support those organizations that are now and have been for years trying to deliver aid to Christians who are on the, on the firing line. I mean, in the Catholic world, there are groups like the Catholic Near East Welfare Association, Aid to the Church in Need. In the Protestant world, there's uh, open doors and, and like-minded organizations. So reach out to those folks and, uh, and support them. Two, uh, I think we can uh, do everything we can to raise consciousness about this issue. Uh, I mean, you know, God bless our Jewish brothers and sisters. If anywhere in the world today a swastika is spray-painted on a synagogue, by tomorrow they will have raised the alarm in a way that the world simply can't miss. I think we Christians can steal a page from their playbook. Uh, and third, as I said earlier, I think we can demand that, uh, that our leaders listen to the voices of, of minorities, including Christians, on the ground uh, in our foreign policy calculations. I mean, I, I frankly think it's unconscionable that we could have been on the brink of going to war in Syria without stopping to think how that might affect the people who have to live with the aftermath of it. Uh, and so on all those levels, uh, I think there's a great deal we can do. Absolutely. And you mentioned some of these fine organizations. Uh, Dr. John Wormbrandt, who had been a guest in this program many years ago, uh, his organization, Voice of the Martyrs, has also done a lot sure, to, to raise great. awareness. And, and all good organizations, and certainly ones that, as uh, John Allen points out, we need to be supporting. Uh, we need to be sensitizing our representatives, as he points out. You know, it's one thing to say we're going to go in and drop bombs or, you know, uh, put the bad guys out of business. But there are often significant consequences that come to all of that. I mean, if we could understand how the church in Iraq has just been torn to shreds because of U.S. military involvement over there, would we rethink that position? I'd like to hope so. Much to pray about. It's a Again, a fantastic book. And, John, we hope to get you back on again soon when we can spend some more time. John Allen, author of The Global War on Christians, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Anti-Christian Persecution, the newly published book, again, um, by Image Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.